Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. So she came to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. For the word of God in scripture, for for the word of God within us, for the word of God among us and for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. It's easy to get those things mixed up, isn't it? The story of Mary and Martha. Have you... Any of you been members of the Scouts or the Girl Guides? It's actually, apparently, um, I was reading some uh, statistics the other day that it's a slight on, on the increase. There's a great dip in, in membership of those kinds of uniform groups for a long time, since about the 1980s. But there's a slight increase. If you haven't been to a Girl Guides or a Boy Scout meeting, um, my memory of them, it's a long time ago, but, uh, but the purpose of the meetings is twofold. One is to gather together and go through some rituals to remind all the members of the kind of group we are and the, and the, uh, the ideals and the purposes of the group. So we do all of that. And then the second purpose is to learn stuff. And you get a badge. Remember those? And if you were ever in those groups, you coveted those badges. And they had the little things on them that, that you'd done. So if you'd done cooking, there was a little cooking, you know, a little pot on there. If you'd done fire lighting, there was little crossed um, bits of wood and fire coming out of them, wasn't there? They had two purposes. And lots of teachers and scholars of the early church, the ancient church, have an idea that it was pretty much like that in the early church. That there were two purposes. One was to gather together to remind each other of what was going on and what the purpose of their life was as followers of Jesus and uh, as as part of the family of God. The prayer that we just shared together, the songs that we sing, the communion that we'll share together later on. That's all a part of that purpose. And we do it regularly because most of us, if you're like me at all, you forget really quickly how extraordinary this experience is and we need to be reminded of it and literally fed as regularly as we can. As I've often said, if we were Catholics, we'd be offering this every day. Mass is is an everyday thing in in some parts of the Catholic Church where they're able to. That's certainly their intention. So that's one part of it. And then the other part of it is that the, the purpose of being a part of the early church was to learn stuff about how to be a follower of Jesus. So it's very practical. There was lots of teaching of each other about how to do this. 
And one way of reading the Gospels is that they were manuals for discipleship. They were the instruction books on how to be a disciple. And very much particularly, scholars believe the Gospel of Luke was written with that intention. That's one of its main intentions, was to be this kind of manual for how to be a disciple. So you had worship, as we would describe it, or the rituals, or the remembering, and the rehearsing, and the redoing, communion, and singing, and praying, and then the learning stuff, how to do this. And in Luke, the whole focus of Luke is about faithfulness and being trusting and faithful in the midst of sometimes confusion. So we, don't, we shouldn't read this story, this little snippet we've got of these two women entertaining Jesus as if there were different ways of being faithful. And if you've been in the church for a while, you'll know that that's sometimes been told to us, that there are, well, there are we're different kinds of people. There are the Marthas of the world who they like to do stuff. And then there are the Marys of the world who like to think about things. And they're different, and we each have a different kind of gift, and, and one of us is like this, and one of us is like that. It's, it's actually, it's nonsense. Because we're all like everything. You're not a type of person. You might have emphases in your life. You might have particular uh, skills and talents, but that doesn't make you a type of person. We're all called to do stuff. You know, your house is a mess only because you didn't clean it. And if you clean it, you're doing what you've got to do. It's just we all got to do that. So there's no kind of dividing this up. One of my great heroes is a man called Clarence Jordan, who's now long dead. He died, I think, in the mid, mid to late 70s. And in the 1950s, Clarence Jordan was running in the northern part of the state of Georgia a community, Christian community, called Kynonia Farm. And he had all kinds of people living there. And what was the most shocking thing in the state of Georgia, the southern state in the United States, in the 1950s, is he had black and white people living together. And it was so shocking that they were often firebombed. And they were often threatened with burning crosses planted in their front yard. But they continued to run this because they had this insane idea that the the Christian gospel was about everybody together. And so they had everybody together. And Clarence Jordan, he he became a a mentor for uh, Martin Luther King. And King would go there sometimes on retreat, particularly when things got heated up in uh, 66 and and the early part of 67. He went there um, where nobody knew he was there and and he could get some rest and some respite and also some counsel from Clarence Jordan. Clarence Jordan was both a cotton farmer and a New Testament scholar. And he would always say that his life was out of balance whenever he spent all his time cotton farming or when he got very busy and had to spend all his time teaching New Testament at the nearby theological school where he was a professor. Every day he tried to spend part of the day learning and preparing his teaching and part of the day getting stuck into the planting. And the, and the sowing and the seeding. And he, he would often write about this, this desire to have this balance. There's no kind of person. There's just all of us trying to find the balance in our lives. And Clarence Jordan is always one of those people that, that I'm reminded of when I think about how difficult it is to balance my life out 
and how wonderful it is on those odd occasions when it does feel balanced, when I'm able to do clear thinking and do good physical work and all the other things that are required by anybody to be an ordinary human being. What this story is about, though, is how do you do the ordinary stuff of life in amongst an extraordinary experience? I, I, having Jesus in your house would be an extraordinary experience, but all the ordinary stuff needs to go on. It was normal for women in the day of Jesus to do all the housework. That's not normal today, although um, the current statistics still show that women do 60% um, more housework, at least twice as much as men do in their lives. So, you know, the idea of us moving towards equality has a little way to go. Uh, so, you know, we think that we've changed, but maybe we haven't changed that much. But that was the rule, and that was the, the norm. So it's, I don't think Jesus is necessarily endorsing that as a way forward, it's just that was the way things were done. And, and so Martha is not being criticised by Jesus for doing the normal things of life. So when Jesus um, speaks to her, he doesn't say, um, Martha, you shouldn't be doing this. He says, you're, you're worried about many things. So she's criticised by Jesus, not for doing the stuff that's got to be done, but for it becoming, if you like, we would use the word today, anxious, by living in anxiety. Now, some of us suffer from anxiety more than others. I have been, over the last couple of years particularly, trying to notice when I'm anxious. And one of the markers for me is where my shoulders are. If they're like that, you might not even be able to see what I'm doing, but I can feel a complete difference between that and that. And much of my life is spent like this. And I don't mean it to be. I've just gotten into a habit over years of being anxious about things. And, and sometimes my anxiety is so strong that I can't really think clearly about everything. And the image that comes into my mind, I don't know if you remember the, the uh, film from the 1940s, I think it was, the Fantasia, the Walt Disney film that was set to beautiful um, orchestral music. Do you remember it? If you haven't seen it, I don't know whether you can even get some of these films on Netflix or, or those sort of things now that early Walt Disney films. But in it, there's a scene where Mickey Mouse is the sorcerer's apprentice. You remember? And he nicks the sorcerer's spell book and he casts a spell because he knows what he's doing and he casts a spell but it turns out he doesn't know what he's doing and instead of making one inanimate object, a broom or a mop I think, um, come to life to do his work, which is to clean the floor of the, uh, of the magic studio, everything comes to life. And everything starts spinning around and around and it's total chaos. That to me is the great illustration of anxiety. All the things that should just be ordinary suddenly get hard to deal with. Even small things. Even a little thing that could go wrong. Like you're suddenly just driving along and it looks like you're going to run out of petrol so you've got to go and find a petrol station. That's no big deal. We're living in Adelaide. There's petrol stations everywhere. But even that when you're feeling anxious, can just add to your anxiety levels. Or I should say, my anxiety levels. And so this idea of, of Mickey Mouse with everything racing around, all the things that should just stay put, start going crazy. And it's impossible to think straight. Everything is out of control. And it's not as if Martha meant this to happen. 
She welcomed Jesus. She was very keen to have Jesus in her home. And if you're a disciple, as Mary and Martha clearly are, one of the things that disciples do in the ancient Near East is they literally sit at the feet of the teacher, which is what Mary is, we're told Mary is doing. She's literally sitting at Jesus' feet. That is the place where a disciple fits. Now, it's a whole other story, the fact that Mary was a woman. It's really outrageous that a woman should be sitting at Jesus' feet. It throws the whole thing up in the air. Just as the story we had last week, which comes just before this, has a man being helped, not by the good, upright Jewish leaders, but by a despised Samaritan. Everything is thrown out of the norm by Jesus. But Martha has welcomed Jesus into her most intimate place, into the home, into the place where she is, which is central to her life. And she's invited Jesus in, so she clearly wants to be connected to him. And Mary manages to do that, but Martha doesn't. It's just all gotten out of control. The life she wants to be living is not the life she is living. This doesn't mean, you know, we've got to eat. Somebody's got to do this stuff. That's not what the story is trying to tell us. I mean, it might be that Martha is wanting to project to Jesus that she is the perfect host. And when Jesus says, you're, you've got, you're doing too many things, it might literally have meant she was preparing too many different dishes for what could have been a simple meal so they could just sit down and eat. We've all been in that situation where we've been invited to a meal at someone's house, or you may not have been, but I certainly have, and the host or hostess is kind of frantic, and they're off in the kitchen doing everything, and you came to be with them, and they're in the kitchen. Can I help? No, no, I don't need any help. It's fine. Clatter, clatter, bang, bang. And you're sitting in the lounge there sipping, you know, with Chardonnay, wondering what's... It's all out of kilter. It's wrong. And everybody knows it is. Jesus is calling her not to be a perfect host or a good woman in the sense of the time. He doesn't need that at all. He's calling her to be a disciple. And in this moment, to be there living anxiety-free. It's not that she shouldn't be a servant and serve. We should all be doing that all the time. Perhaps a woman in the near Middle East should be doing it a bit less. And some of the men should get off their bums and do a bit more. And maybe today, given the statistics, that ought to be happening. But it doesn't mean that a person doesn't serve. In fact, the story before this, the Good Samaritan, it's full of service. The whole point of it is somebody comes out of themselves, a very strange person in the way that the Jews would think, and serves. So service isn't the problem. It's her locked-inness in this level of anxiety, not living trusting, which is at the heart of Luke's gospel, the trust and the faithfulness. And to be present in the moment. Jesus is a visitor. He won't be there the next day. He'll be on, moving on through the uh, other parts of Galilee to do his preaching. And he's there now. And this is the moment. And my experience of anxiety is that I miss whole moments in, in my day because I'm anxious about it. Not about the thing that is happening now, but the thing that will likely happen next or the thing that should happen next or the, what I'm supposed to do or all the things that I haven't done or what people will think of me if I haven't done the right thing. 
So my life is then driven by all the things that are coming ahead. And I'm missing the moment I'm in. I mean, you might have found this when you're driving. If you're so busily thinking, and you're driving somewhere you've driven lots of times before, when you get there, you think, I don't remember any of that trip. I hope I only went through the green lights, but I've no memory of it. Because you're sort of miles away. It's frightening to think that there's lots of people driving next to you who are doing that, let alone the people who are working on their phones or doing all those other things. It's, what's amazing is that we keep as safe as we do on the roads. But there's that sense where we're just not present in the moment. And what Jesus is saying to Mary and to Martha is, let's be present in this moment. Yes, you have ordinary responsibilities. They're not remarkable. Everyone has them. Things need to be done. We need to make our lives function. We need to be caring of the people that we're responsible to and for. But there's a different way of doing it. To live in joy. To live, to live without anxiety. And somehow, that's the call that Jesus is making here in this story. And it's about trust. It's about trust that God knows what's going on in your life and in the world around you. And you can live in that trust. Not constantly. If you're like me, you fall out of it every 20 or 30 seconds. I have to come back to it. No, this is who I am. This is where I am. This is the moment I'm in. Just be present now. And it's a constant bringing back to it. There's a constant reminder of it. Jesus said finally to Mary, uh, to Martha, about Mary, there's only one thing that is needed. And it's that trust and that joy of knowing you're loved and a part of the great community of God to be present in the moment.